Right, thank you very much. <clears throat> a Danish existentialist philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard compared the church <clears throat> to, a, to a barnyard with a flock of geese. And he said uh, every seventh day those geese would <clears throat> gather together and one of them would climb up on a box in the corner of the barn lot and he began to preach about a beautiful golden goose who lived a long time ago and stretched out his wings and flew high in the sky from where he could survey all the beauties of the earth beneath. He would finish his sermon, climb down from the box, and with the congregation of geese go back around in the barn lot the rest of the week, pecking around in the mundane activities in the floor of the barn lot. But every seventh day, the same thing would occur. They congregation would gather in the corner and he'd climb up on a box and preach about the beautiful golden goose that lived a long time ago. Kierkegaard said one strange thing, though, about those geese. They never flew because the barnyard was secure and the geese were content. What an indictment. We talk about the Lord Jesus Christ the loftiness of his life, but we don't copy it. We don't live it quite like he has asked, for which we can only thank God for grace. Amid the current political and national and international foment, I've begun to think a little bit differently. I noticed how Jesus carried on <clears throat> under the iron heel of Roman dictatorial oppression and exploitation. Freedoms were restricted. Taxation put the people, his people, in heavy bondage. Yet his political concerns were zero. He paid little or no attention at all to the politic of the Roman government. His popularity, though, put him at risk with the Rome, <clears throat> with Rome seeing which they saw him as a mutineer. He showed no concern for the seething cauldron of political discontent that surrounded him. His total focus, his primary concern, his supreme concentration was on one subject and one subject alone, and that was the kingdom of God. From Easter sunrise morning to the ascension, those 40 days were given totally. Luke, the gospel tells us, he taught them concerning the kingdom of God. For the last 40 days on this planet, as an American, it's pretty hard not to um, avoid political concerns. They're beamed out at us absolutely every day in the news media. But our place on this planet is different from others about us. We are what might be called resident aliens in what we call our fatherland, America. But our true citizenship is somewhere else. But since the kingdom of God was Jesus' primary concern, maybe we need to make it ours. First of all, I want to introduce you to what I call a paradox. <clears throat> Let's look at the scripture. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, what would say, But what about you? He asked. 
Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, Well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. As a sovereign God, trusting us humans is what I call a kingdom paradox. Now, a paradox is an apparent contradiction. It looks like a contradiction. It looks like something this can't be, but it is. So it's not a contradiction. It's a paradox. Let me explain. The message of the eternal purpose of creation, of human existence, and our being on this planet, on a little group, all of this trusted, risked on a group of men who did not yet comprehend even what it was. Teaching after teaching through the New Testament, 40 days, they were still struggling to figure out what in the world is Jesus talking about. The creator of the universe... From nova to supernova to quarks to black holes. Every element on the periodic chart in physics and more. The inventor of all the flora and fauna in the globe. The governor of everything that lives and moves. Stoops from eternity to place the keys of an everlasting kingdom into the tongue, onto the, onto the tongue of a fallen and occasionally bumbling, sinful man like Peter. That I call a paradox. <clears throat> Recently, I read an article that said the most powerful telescopes that we have in the world are only able to expose 5% of our universe. Our most powerful telescopes. We are not even beginning to see all of the existence of God's creation. And our universe is only one of many universes scientists have discovered. One seer, overwhelmed, I think, with the wonder of God's transcendent authority and power, wrote these words. <clears throat> I think this uh, kind of captures it. He wrote this. <clears throat> Architects, he said, have strained their powers to the utmost and have conceived of no cathedrals great enough for his worship. Painters holding a cargo of wonder in their brushes have painted no pictures beautiful enough to depict him. Sculptors searching through all the rock quarries of the earth have found no marble white enough for his brow. Musicians making surging seas of tones subservient to their batons have created no compositions sweet enough to sing his hymns of praise. Orators whose words are like flights of golden arrows reach only to the outskirts of his grandeur. 
Poets sweeping their thoughts together in poems and dramas measure him but feebly. Writers which seem to have pens of fountainheads of Niagara's express only a meager measure of the honor that is due him. I like the words of the poet who wrote, Who shall paint him? Let the sweetest chords that ever trembled on the harps of heaven be discord. Let the chanting seraphims whose anthem is eternity be dumb. For praise and wonder and adoration all melt into mutinous ere they soar to thee. Soul perfection, theme of countless words. I think of the kingdom of God should strike wonder and awe in our hearts as we ponder it. We have a book in our library at school entitled The Transfigured Church. It was written by J.H. Jowett. In that book, he makes this statement. He said, We leave our places of worship, and no deep and inexpressible wonder is seen on our faces. We sing these lively melodies, and our faces are no different from those who are leaving the theaters and the music halls. He says, There is nothing about us to suggest that we have been looking upon anything stupendous or overwhelming. And then he writes, I remember far back in my boyhood days, an old saint telling me after some services he liked to make his way home alone, in quiet by paths, so that the hush of the Almighty might remain on his awed and prostrate soul. The passage in our text is a pivotal moment in the Gospels. Up to this time... Jesus has been preaching to the great crowds of Galilee that have gathered around him. Now, there is a uh, somberness that invades his message as he begins to turn and talk about his imminent death. The gates of Hades, it does not say the gates of hell. That is a mistranslation. The gates of Hades, it's really talking about the grave. And what Jesus is doing is giving a cryptic prediction of his own suffering and death. Even the grave itself will not prevent the church from coming about. Even though, you apostles, even though you may find me buried in a tomb, this will not prevent what I'm doing to establish the church. The gates of Hades will not prevail. Friday, Friday will end. Saturday will come and go. But Sunday morning, the sun will rise. S-O-N. They didn't get it. None got it. You have the Mount of Transfiguration from all of it. Jesus ascends into heaven. Ten more days go by, and then, 50 days after the resurrection, Pentecost. And on Pentecost, they got it. They got it. And they passed it on to us. And now it's up to us to pass it on. The kingdom of God in the hands of people. The gates of Hades, gates of the grave. I remember uh, hearing about a painting of a church that was uh, painted high on a hill, and all around that church was, were cannons and tanks and the armament of war. And the picture 
showed the war going on at the church, but the church was standing serene and undaunted on the hill. And underneath was the writing, and the gates of, of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, it may have been a very beautiful picture, but that is not the picture in our text. The picture in our text is of an army of soldiers storming the very battlements of graves and the hell, and they prevail. They prevail. That's the picture in our text. <clears throat> Some years ago, um, the recruiting officer um, and office of our school was right next to my office. I was dean of students, and, and uh, a couple, a husband and wife, were, had brought their daughter to school to look us over and decide whether or not she wanted to attend uh, Lincoln Christian College. And uh, the father and daughter were talking to the recruiter, and the mother came over to me, and she said, um, if you want my daughter to attend your school, you better roll out the red carpet. We've been to visit several other schools, and they rolled out the red carpet for her. I'm, I'm going to tell you what answer I did not give. <laughs> we have a red carpet here. It's a river of red with the blood of the martyrs and the prophets and the apostles and the saints. It is a rivulet of crimson stained red with the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you're looking for a place to be coddled and cradled and pampered and indulged, then maybe... The work of the kingdom is not your calling. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, said when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. But why Peter on Pentecost? Why not the angel Gabriel? It is very humbling for me to ask this question. Why me? Why Ewald to stand in this pulpit with these eternal words so vitally important? Why not the angel Gabriel? You could have put Gabriel here. Would there be any empty pews if the angel Gabriel came here to preach this morning? That's the paradox. The kingdom of God in our hands, the most important message ever to grace the ears of an audience, and it's Peter. He didn't have a class in preaching. He's a fisherman without even the likes of a college degree. He wasn't of royal blood. You see, God moves today, as he ever has, with lowly means, a stable a donkey, a sandal-shod itinerant preacher in the backwoods of Galilee from a tiny out-of-the-way town, he had no palace, no bejeweled ground, no golden scepter. Kingdom access is not about razzle-dazzle. It's not about coercion. Nobody is forced. It's not an er about earthly values or force. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we are praying, almighty God, bring your reign in my heart. Rule my heart the way you rule the stars and the planets. They don't rebel against you. Make my heart like that. That's our prayer. 
But it's an earthly kingdom. It's formed by the rule of the word of God in the human heart. It's the surrender of the soul to a message which the Jews considered a stumbling block and the brilliant Greek philosophers thought it something only for fools and simpletons. They would look at us and say, how foolish. But it's the wisdom of God. There's a great story. I love it in the Old Testament. In in, uh, 2 Kings. It's a story of Elisha, the prophet who had prophesied for 50 years during the reign of six different kings. He's on his deathbed. That voice that had trumpeted the call and the word of God across Israel for 50 years now is reduced to a whisper. And the king, King Jehoash, comes to the bedside of the old prophet He kneels beside the bed of Elisha there in Samaria, the capital, and he cries out, Oh, my father, my father, the horsemen of Israel and the chariots thereof. Now, the strange thing about that is Elisha wasn't King Jehoash's father. He wasn't his father. He wasn't even a soldier in the king's army. He didn't bear a sword for the king. But the king realizes that the source of power behind Israel was that prophet and the words that had come from that prophet's lip. The preacher, more powerful than the armament he could summon. And so it is today. The strength of a nation, it's not our gold reserve, it's It's not our intercontinental hellfire and ballistic missiles. It's not our stealth bombers. It's not our Apache helicopters. It's not our nuclear arsenal. The strength of a nation is the word of Almighty God burned into the human soul. It has been and it always will be. The kingdom of God has everything to do with getting the word out. Now it's in our hands. Evangelism, teaching classes, teaching the children. Deacons, deaconesses, ladies working in the kitchen, men back operating those machines that humble me, that scare me, if you please. There are no menial tasks in the work of the kingdom. It's all about something bigger than every one of us, even preparing the communion cups. It's about benevolence and stewardship and missions at home and abroad. No task is menial. What the kingdom is? Well, it's greater than was expected. It's for every tongue and tribe and people and nation. It crosses every cultural and racial bound and geographical bound. And it's less than anticipated. It's for the poor and the suffering and the hurting and the harlots, and the tax farmers, and the simple, and the childlike, and the social rejects, and the poor in spirit, and the meek, and the hungry, and the penitent mourners. It is lofty, and it is lowly. It is now, and it is yet to be. It is around us. It is within us when he rules. The kingdom of God is backwards, sometimes upside down. Matthew Uh, tells how Jesus in Matthew 13, looking for a rhetorical sledgehammer to find the best analogy 
uh, the best simile or metaphor for the kingdom of God. Listen, it's seed sown in the soil that is deep and soft and fertile and productive. The kingdom is like wheat entangled with tares until the judgment torches the tares, but the wheat survives. It is a tiny seed with explosive potential over a million times its size, as was read for us a moment ago. It is leaven that transforms life from weakness into strength. It is a treasure that springs from an unexpected place out of a daily routine with insight that revises our entire life's ambitions. It is a pearl of great price that I talked about last Sunday. It contains all that is beautiful in music and art and literature and human relations at a cost of absolutely everything that we own in the world. It is a net just like a church that gathers good and bad and awaits the judgment of God to discern and separate. It is a householder who brings all that he has and all that he is and all that he knows and all that he's ever done to serve the transcendent calling of Jesus Christ. It is a dream. It is an adventure. It is a pilgrimage, a reward, a voyage, a gift, an unending drama with indescribable and unimaginable consequences. It is worth infinitely more than we could ever invest. What the kingdom is, but what the kingdom is not. It is not uh, this world. It is not we who bring it about. Years ago, there were a number of songs that uh, came out of a period of time. Uh, This song... Are ye able, said the master. I love that song. It's a beautiful hymn. Are ye able, said the master, to be crucified with me? Yea, the sturdy dreamers answered, uh, to the death we'll follow thee. Our spirits are thine. Then there was another song. um, Rise up, O men of God. The kingdom tarries long. It's a great, great hymn. Bring in the day of brotherhood and end the night of wrong as though we're doing it. We do not do it. If God doesn't do it, it doesn't get done. It is God who brings the kingdom. We sound the word, but he brings the kingdom. It's his creation. We sound the message, but the rest is up to God. Well, it is not Lyndon B. Johnson's great society, nor was it John F. Kennedy's uh, new frontier We build parks during that period of time, that whole decade or two. We built sky-rise apartments in downtown Chicago, Pruitt-Igoe and Cabrini-Green, thinking we would bring the crime off the streets into these wonderful units and parks. And all that happened was they brought their drugs and their crime and their prostitution and every crime imaginable into the sky-rise apartments and into the beautiful parks. They turned them into drug-ridden ghettos. It is not Woodrow Wilson's war to end all wars. He set up the League of Nations after World War I to end all wars. Well, since then, there are more wars right now in the world than ever before in the history of the world. More wars. Jesus said there would be wars and um, rumors of wars forever. How did he know that? Here is a picture of a ship that my father was on in World War II. I was able to find this ship, that, that one there, the 140 uh, landing barge. 
He was, he was a second-class pharmacist mate on that sh- very ship. Uh, he did not sail with it. He wound up uh, in the medical uh, unit in uh, Chicago, in Waukegan. But that ship carried tanks and delivered those tanks on the southern shore of Italy in World War II. But that ship was brought back after the war. I've read about that ship. It was um, docked in Mobile, Alabama. And the steel from that ship was turned into tractors and plows and farm implements. I have read that. And across our land at that time, prophets came into pulpits just like this and said, Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. They shall learn of war no more. Great idea just didn't happen. Never in history has the world seen more wars than right now. Every day this week, our American armed forces will drop bombs on six different countries. This week. I began a list of wars. Afghanistan, Syria, Congo, Iraq, Yemen, Ukraine, Pakistan, Lebanon, Egypt, Libya, Mali, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan, Nigeria, Cameroon, Chad, Niger, Israel, India, Myanmar, China, Russia, Ethiopia, Central African Republic, and on and on. I quit the list. But none of these is the war. None of these is the real war. You came here this day to worship in this building because someone sometime took you aside and you chose to enlist in the real war. I call it the big war. Only Christians know what real mortal combat is. Pagans don't know. C.S. Lewis was absolutely right. He said, pagans live a very sheltered life. It is the Christian who understands the war. It is the Christian who must understand what the commanding officer has in mind and what the siren songs of the enemy have produced to tempt us. The only kingdom that endures is the kingdom of God. This uh, picture is a painting. I took a picture of it that used to hang in Billy Sunday Chapel in Pacific Garden Mission on State Street in downtown Chicago. That was a painting, and Billy Billy Sunday was a famous evangelist in Chicago years and years ago. It captured my attention. Um, Oops. Down in front, here is the Colosseum. What happened? (laughs) Thank you. There we go. Down in front is the Colosseum in Rome, Italy. The Roman Empire, the great empire, really, of Jesus' day. And next to it is the Sphinx and the Pyramids of Egypt, one of the great kingdoms in the ancient world. We read about it all the time uh, on the, uh, many of the history channels on TV. Uh, then next to it, the Ark of Triumph, the French uh, uh, symbolic of the French uh, Empire. 
And then uh, some of the broken remains here of the Assyrian Empire, another great kingdom of the world, ancient kingdom. Then here is the Acropolis in downtown Athens, Greece, and on top of it is the Parthenon. In a rather broken and deteriorated state, all of them, you see the brokenness and the deterioration of time. Well, a Turkish bomb landed. It was an arsenal landed and blew up the Parthenon, but they've restored it in its Greek beauty. But it's still a broken and deteriorated state, symbolic of all some of the greatest empires in the history of the world. Now, the idea um, behind the picture, he had painted a, a cross, I think, uh, I tried to capture the color because it was much brighter, but it's just not a great picture of a picture. He painted the cross with red and white and yellow beams stretching out from every direction and the cross. And it reminded me of the song, the hymn that we used to sing. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time. And the idea behind the picture is long after the kingdoms of this world have been have sunk into the dust of time to be forgotten, Almighty God will still reign supreme. Jesus Christ will still be king. We are resident aliens. Our real citizenship is in that alternate universe right next to ours that we call the kingdom of God. It's right there. And we live in the hope of one day experiencing it in all of its fullness. That's the hope of the Christian. It's the one that every one of us has brought today with us, and we will take home with us when we leave. If you don't have that, then we're going to stand and sing, and you're invited to come. Name Christ as king of your life. Accept him as your savior. And... uh, that opportunity. Let's stand together. Mm-hmm.